What do you get the guy who has everything? A $44 billion social media platform, apparently. Elon Musk has already been accused of union busting, shot a car into space and became the world's richest man. So what's next on his to-do list? Buying Twitter, of course. Elon Musk has said businesses and governments may soon need to pay a slight fee to use Twitter. Elon Musk today in an event saying that he would reverse Twitter's ban on Donald Trump. He's presenting himself as a kind of social affairs warrior, really, isn't he? Wanting, he, he sees it as a kind of village notice board, really, doesn't he? From Mark Zuckerberg to Elon Musk, should we be worried that our online lives are in the hands of a few super rich men? Will cryptocurrencies and Web3 make the internet good again? And what would a people-powered internet really look like? I think but what we're looking for here is a system that doesn't just put uh, all of the decision-making power into a Californian boardroom and that we have uh, powers for users. We need to structure social media in a way that isn't uh, kind of privatized in these walled gardens. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, who owns the internet? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Dr. James Muldoon, Senior Lecturer in Political Science at the University of Exeter and Head of Digital Research at the Autonomy Think Tank. Hi, James. Hi, thank you for having me on. No worries. Thanks so much for being with me. This is a topic that I feel like I know very little about. And every time I've dipped my toe in, I've been deeply terrified and ran away. Um, so I'm really excited to get into it. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to help me understand it a little bit better. Maybe I'll be equally terrified. Maybe not. Who knows? So let's let's dive in. As we just heard, the world's richest person, Elon Musk, has just bought Twitter for $44 billion. This has been a big news story, of course, but Twitter isn't nearly the most popular social media platform, uh, and the majority of people don't even really use it very regularly. So why should we care about who owns it? So I think Musk really is making a very political move in buying what he has called the digital town square. He really has put himself as the new Donald Trump as the center point of this new global discourse around which the entire Twitter sphere uh, now rotates. I think it's, it's really tough to see Musk as a genuine defender of free speech because I think he has such a long history of silencing his critics and retaliating against workers. So I think when we see him making moves to buy Twitter, really we can see this as like a political act of him trying to assert control and dominance over one of the more important platforms for, for political communication. But in the past, we've seen Musk has illegally fired workers for, for union organizing. He's had six separate women file uh, lawsuits against Tesla. And he is associated with some really terrible and increasingly influential ideas around the Silicon Valley scene. There's a lot of right-wing figures that are kind of funding a lot of this operation. And it's a really a dark day for democracy in terms of the influence that Musk will now exercise over Twitter. Something tells me I'm not going to leave this feeling any less terrified. Uh, thank you for that. That was really helpful. This town square thing is interesting to me. To what extent, James, would you agree that Twitter is a town square? And just to pick up the other point that you made there about the politics, Elon Musk calls himself a free speech absolutist. What do you think of that? 
Yeah, well, I think maybe the practical outcome of this is probably going to be, you know, keeping up more posts. There's going to be less takedowns of of people's comments uh, and perhaps less permanent bans. So, you know, in terms of what this might mean, well, one of the practical realities could mean uh, the return of the Donald uh, onto Twitter, right? If this was the digital public square, one of the kind of least liked members of that square may be quickly making his return. And, and if Donald does come back, this could be the start of, of uh, groundwork for a, a 2024 campaign. So this could be a huge consequence of Musk's purchase of Twitter. In terms of the free speech absolutism that we've talked about, one of the things that he said is by free speech, uh, he means you know that which matches the law, right? So he doesn't want anything extra or any kind of extra protections on what people can say. Now, I think the immediate practical problem uh, with enforcing something like this is going to be, well, Twitter operates in you know hundreds of jurisdictions across the globe and different institutional and legal environments have different rules for free speech, for what kind of things you can say, what constitutes hate speech, what is considered you know, Holocaust denial. Different regions and different countries will have different views of that. So even in the practical domain, I think Musk will instantly find it a lot harder to do in reality some of his ideas that he might have. I think we can kind of see from his initial kind of statements, some of the plans that he put through in his pitch deck, what he might have in mind. Um, Some of the things that he's talked about doing is, first of all, charging some people for using Twitter, right? So probably not ordinary users, probably people who are businesses or brands, but he has talked about maybe reducing the amount of revenue Twitter gets from ads. So this might mean new subscription services. It will be interesting to see to what extent this, you know, actually creates or or maintains a vital public sphere that we now enjoy with Twitter. Will there be a mass exodus from Twitter if increasingly people have to pay to use it? If there are kind of a a shakeup in in the payment model, maybe a move towards uh, more shopping or more premium users on the service? it will kind of be interesting to see what actually happens and whether it can even act as a, as a viable public square in the way that it has. Yeah, it's interesting, especially the stuff around kind of, first of all, I wonder if, you know, Trump said, even if he did get allowed back on Twitter, he wouldn't, I wouldn't go back anyway. And he's got his old truth social thing. And I guess it would be interesting to know your thoughts on that. Do you think that's all kind of bluster and, and actually he will kind of go back on Twitter? And And the other thing off the back of what you were just saying is, you know, the inner workings of Twitter's content moderation and algorithms have always been kind of shrouded in mystery. And I guess with some of the things that Elon Musk is proposing around, you know, removing likes or or getting rid of certain other bits of functionality on the site, is it important, I guess, for us to have a better understanding of how Twitter actually works? And will we find that out once once he takes over? Yeah. So firstly, on the question of Donald Trump, um, I am aware that he has said he wouldn't go back, but it was such an important platform for him, um, both during his presidency and in the lead up to it, that you would really have to wonder what his advisors would be telling him, particularly if he does want to run again. Obviously, True Social doesn't have anywhere near the reach that Twitter does. He just dominated the platform for you know his entire time in public life. So I guess it's an open question, right? I think if I was an advisor to him, I would definitely be telling him that if he could go back on, that he should if you wanted to make a run for the 24 presidency. In terms of like what we know about Twitter, obviously the, you know, like any company, a lot of the algorithms and the ranking algorithms are, are shrouded in mystery. We, with their private 
secrets that are kind of part of the, the company's intellectual property. I don't think we'll be seeing anything more of this, right? Because it's going from a public company to a private one, one that's owned by one person. And it kind of shows you the power that the billionaire class has over our digital communications, right? That this arbitrary power where someone on a whim, basically, we still don't know if he's entirely serious about this whole thing. Obviously, he's kind of going through with the purchase, but he is this kind of trickster god who kind of has this history of pranking and, and, and doing weird and zany things for his own amusement. So it's really unsure what his actual intentions are. We know what he's told investors. We know what he's kind of promised the public. He's trying to sell himself as this defender of free speech and defender of democracy. But he has a long history of very erratic and controversial behavior, which raises this more general point of, well, are we happy with something like Twitter, which along with other communication infrastructure is kind of essential to the liberal democracies we live in today? Do we want this and, and all its functionality to be subject to the whims of a single person? Because Musk is under no, or he, he has no duty to disclose any of that, right? And I think it's, it raises this more general point about many of the digital platforms that we use and, and the ranking and sorting algorithms that they use in order to organize digital information, things like Google search, the ranking algorithms on your Facebook feed, all of these things. We haven't had a public discussion about how they work. Most of us have little to no idea of what actually goes on behind the scenes. And it raises these really important questions for, well, how genuine can we say we actually have popular rule in our democracy when these instruments that are so essential to it working are basically in the hands of a few billionaires? Let's stick with that question for a second. I want to go deeper into some of the other things you mentioned later on, but to stick with the kind of hands of a few billionaires point. So Facebook, now called Meta, owns what's happened? Instagram and Google, now called Alphabet, apparently, uh, owns YouTube. It's also confusing. But, you know, some folks would say if they're providing services to us for free, uh, you know, as you say, lots of people are benefiting in various different ways from the existence of these services, then does it really matter, you know, who owns them and that it's a few billionaires or big corporations and it's not particularly transparent? Well, so there are a couple of points here. The first one is... There are free services, but we're not getting them for free, right? So the, the Google and Facebook, Alphabet and Meta make their money primarily as advertising platforms, right? Which means that there's this data to advertising pipeline in which, you know, your, your consumer preferences basically and your demographic groups are used in order to generate targeted advertising for you. And so the average Facebook user at least in the North American market, might be worth like $60, 60 US dollars a year, for example. Uh, and that will be significantly less in, in other countries around the world. But, you know, that's $60 that Facebook is essentially just gleaning from you. And you're not offered any kind of compensation for that. You're not offered any reward. It's basically just the part of the, the proprietary rights that have kind of grown up around these, these services that at a time when they were introduced, we didn't really know the enormous value that something like Facebook or Google would end up producing, right? And so the billions and billions of dollars that, that it has accrued, it has generated from ordinary users, right? That's money that could either be going to the public purse or it could be uh, returned to the users that generated it in the first place. So I think there is this real danger here of assuming that they're offering free services and therefore we don't have any right or any say in, in how they might be used because 
both Facebook and Google are operating extremely extractive business models in which they are crowd fleecing their billions of users to generate profits for shareholders. Um, so I don't think it's a, a truly the case that they're free. They're free at the point of use, but they're certainly getting their fair share from us. And so this second point about essentially like, well, how could they be governed or, or what kinds of structures might we have over them? You know, there are uh, many examples of ways in which platforms could be governed by their users in various ways, by communities, small and large. Um, and I think we need to think seriously about how we extend some of the principles of democracy that operate in our kind of national and, and subnational political context to the digital sphere. What would a kind of democratic Facebook look like? How could we have public conversations about sorting and ranking algorithms? How could we make them subject to democratic control, to a vote, to deliberation? Perhaps, you know, a, a small mini public of citizens could assess the kinds of structures that are in place, what kinds of algorithms that are used, and make recommendations based on, on these kinds of discussions. Yeah, let's, let's, I want to circle back to talking more about what those answers to some of those questions you just posed are, because it feels incredibly important. But, you know, of course, let's stick with the problems for a while longer. You know, some, some of the, the bigger changes that are happening in the kind of world of the internet at the moment, as I just kind of referenced, Facebook uh, has rebranded itself as Meta and is launching something called the Metaverse. So I want to start off by just asking you, what on earth is the Metaverse? And then let's, let's go into it. Uh, sure. So as we all know, Facebook is now Meta. And it thinks that the future of the internet and indeed the future of our lives is going to be in the metaverse. I mean, Zuckerberg has described the metaverse as an embodied internet. I think what he means by that is that through virtual reality and augmented reality technology, we'll find new ways to interact with people in, in both digital and hybrid spaces. So very simply put, you'll be wearing goggles and you'll be sitting and having your business meeting, not in an actual room, but in a, in a virtual you know, virtual world. You might be playing games online and you could be walking around the world and you could be using some some augmented reality glasses and you might see in the in the same way that uh, like a, a Pokemon world, for example, you might see digital creatures that are kind of laid over the real world. So, you know, it's an attempt to intensify current trends towards the monetization of online spaces and online communities. There is an enormous amount of money that's been put into this venture. Zuckerberg has really kind of gone all in on it. And we'll, let's see what happens, right? There are some early signs that, that it is paying off. So I know that Meta's headsets, the VR headsets are, are doing pretty well. The Oculus VR app was, you know, one of the most downloaded apps uh, at the end of last year. But at the same time, it's still essentially a loss-making venture at the moment, right? So they, they've invested about $10 billion into developmental and operational costs for this. And at the end of last year, it had only made $2.2 billion back. So I think Zuckerberg has this dream that eventually, you know, some line of his hardware will replace the smartphone as people's main devices for accessing the internet and, and being online, right? So I think Zuckerberg's dream is like, you don't want to be on your phone anymore. You just want to have your, your Facebook or Meta glasses on and you'll be you know, using their devices to access the internet and, and hopefully for him, also accessing their online and virtual worlds. 
so you've got the hardware line, which is kind of all there is at the moment, right? What we've seen of the, the virtual worlds is, is really pretty pathetic. And a lot of the hardware is, is also in its kind of infancy stages. But in terms of like what the worlds will look like, my take is that if it's going to be anything, and I think that is still an open question, right? I think increasingly people are starting to think that it, it might just be a big flop. But if it's going to be anything, it might be a fusion of gaming and social media. So think like Fortnite meets Roblox with some added kind of messaging and, and media sharing features, right? So gaming is this enormous industry. It's like $150 billion a year. And the metaverse is really perhaps a way that you could increasingly monetize these kinds of gaming worlds because, you know, kids increasingly just, you know, hang out in these spaces, right? It's kind of where they meet each other. It's where they hang out after school, they chat. So if you could make these worlds kind of huge digital economies in which people, you know, like in Roblox, people actually creating and crafting digital products and goods for each other, they're buying, they're selling, you create this whole online economy where people are trading skins, weapons, avatars, this kind of thing. And you as the platform owner, well, you can do a few things. You can charge a subscription fee for season passes. So you can, you know, for two months, you can kind of, I don't know, charge people $5 to log on to this season. But you can also charge taxes, essentially. You can, you can kind of skim a little bit off the top every time once someone wants to trade an avatar or trade a skin or some kind of digital good. So it creates this, you know, a much greater uh, revenue generating opportunity than merely just like selling people a copy of the game, right? Which is what you might have done, you know, a few years ago, that you wouldn't give people the game for free. You would charge them, you know, $50 and that's all they would pay. But, you know, if you have this whole online world and an online political economy, it really opens up a much greater, you know, line of revenue for you in, in the future. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. My question would be around, do you really think that the kind of more social media aspect of it, so the idea that people who aren't into gaming and aren't into that kind of way of interacting with folks would want to kind of buy these headsets and step into the metaverse and kind of be in that space in a more social way, I think is one of my questions. And another question that I have is around, you know, there's been lots of excitement from investors and fans of cryptocurrency around the idea that this is kind of going to be taking power away from big banks and traditional investors and kind of democratizing the space in, in some way. And I just want to get your take on that too. Yeah. So would, would social media users or you know, let's say that non-gaming folks, so, you know, the, the next few billion out there who aren't into that world, would they be up for these virtual spaces. I think my sense is no, and that's why I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to like the future of the metaverse. I just don't think it will take off. I think where it might take off is is in work, right? Because I think Facebook or Meta might be able to generate incentives for various types of companies to use their products for work-related things. And I wonder whether, you know, we're all just going to increasingly be you know, forced to have drinks after work in the metaverse and forced to, to have all our meetings in there. And if that might be the way in which it kind of catches on to a larger community, who knows? I mean, it's so hard to tell which kinds of tech products will catch on. I think it's, it is kind of interesting to know that we, like the metaverse is a rebrand of a basically a failed 1980s slash 90s technology, right? Like we've had virtual reality gear before and it proved to be quite unsuccessful right so video games have attempted to do it in the past and it didn't really take off and i think you can say the same for your next question which was about web3 
because Web3, this idea that we're going to decentralize and democratize the internet, you know, it's a slightly different pitch than the metaverse. People are really interested in what blockchain technology can do. So these publicly accessible distributed ledgers, which are the basis of, of what we know as crypto networks, but they, they can do other things as well as cryptocurrency. They're a way for like storing transaction data and, and to have this public way of verifying what's actually on the, the network. And you can, you know, do financial transactions of it. You can kind of have online communities based off it. You can have structures of governance that's put on the code. And so this Web3 model for what might be the future of the internet, it looks a little bit different to the metaverse because one of the promises of Web3 is that it's going to devolve power back to users. And the primary way that people think it's going to do this is through this new ownership model of everyone owning digital tokens. And that these tokens, it could be Bitcoin, it could be Ethereum, it could be something else like a Dogecoin or a purpose-built token for your community, that they'll grant you governance rights over that community and that you'll therefore be able to participate in events and you you might have your NFT and, and other things like that. I think the problem here is that There's this promise that it's going to redistribute value, but there's no mechanism for actual capital, actual money to be changing hands, right? It's basically just the people who are already rich retaining those rights and promising people that they too should all invest all their money in cryptocurrency. Uh, And we're in the middle of of an enormous crash in cryptocurrency at the moment. So I don't think it's very good days at the moment for these kinds of people, but it's worth noting that cryptocurrency is one of the most unevenly distributed and unequal currencies in the world, right? The kinds of hierarchies and inequalities that exist in that sphere are far greater than any fiat currency. And so this idea that by everyone investing in crypto will suddenly have this revolution of ownership, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly agree. Let's carry on talking about Web3 for a minute, because I, I think that this, you've written something really interesting that Web3 is offering a technical fix for a political problem. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, you've just touched on that a little bit in your answer, but it would be great if you could say a bit more about that. And returning to our discussion earlier of the kind of public space online, what does Web3 mean for the internet as a place to kind of provide a digital public sphere within the parameters and the context of all those things that you just laid out? So I guess one of the things that Web3 promises is that you'll have a more distributed ownership structure. But I think the reality is that you're just going to see more gated communities. I think one of the things that we're starting to see is that the people who, I mean, Web3 is a very kind of trendy niche idea that has not really hit the mainstream yet. Some aspects of it became quite popular last year, but I'm pretty sure your average you know, person on the street is not going to know what Web3 is or, or have participated in it in any way. The people who are really in it are generally those who, who are really eager to get on the next big thing, right? So they see this as like a potential way to get rich, potential way to make money, to make an early investment, to 10 times their, their investment. And so they're people who are going to purchase tokens in these new communities. But I don't think that this is going to result in any kind of redistribution of wealth, right? It's not going to genuinely affect how wealth is distributed in the digital economy. And I think at the moment, you're also seeing a really big backlash against some of the core aspects of Web3. So one of the things is NFTs, non-fungible tokens, or kind of digital artwork or or other things. 
you know, people are pushing back against those. They're kind of already seem quite passe, right? That you would have the board ape or one of the punks or something like that for ten to a hundred thousand dollars. And you know, gamers have pushed back against them. A lot of online communities have pushed back against NFTs. There was this huge surge of companies that were trying to integrate NFTs into their products, right? Everything from like Walmart to Samsung, Adidas and Nike were trying to do NFTs. Everyone was trying to cash in. But even you can look at like Google search analytics and and just the general overall hype for them. You know, a lot of these are in decline. And it's partly because cryptocurrency itself is kind of crashing from Kazakhstan to Russia to China's ban on it to the general downturn of the economy. You know, when the economy slumps, people kind of have to sell their most volatile assets and that's always going to really negatively affect crypto. And it's not entirely clear that those who are, you know, holding onto their assets, uh, digital assets for, for dear life are ever going to recoup the kinds of losses that they're starting to experience. You know, it might have an upturn, but there's no guarantee that cryptocurrencies will ever return to the kind of highs that they've um, got. And if you can't make money in it, I think the enthusiasm that people proclaim to have in these ideas about decentralization and freedom will quickly pass away. And because I, I do think it is f- for most people who are in it, primarily a way of, of making money. That makes sense. I'd like to know a bit more about NFTs because it's definitely something that I kind of hear bandied around all the time. And I think it's probably true for lots of listeners. I just don't really understand how it works. Is it just, I don't, like for me, it just seems like a picture that somebody is like, this costs a million pounds. Please explain to me like how NFTs work and what the logic is behind them. And then I want to come circle back to the other point that you were making around the kind of dip in crypto and link that to some of the stuff we were saying earlier around the speculative economy. But for now, what's an NFT? So you are asking an NFT skeptic, right? So I'm I'm not a huge fan of them. And I, I don't think they, I mean, I think they, they're actually like a terrible thing to have occurred because you, what you're doing is you're taking something that is free and open, something that, you know, for example, a picture file or, or any kind of digital file And you're creating a a situation of artificial scarcity around that, right? You're telling someone that they can own something that was previously free and available for everyone to use. So for example, an NFT will give you ownership rights over a particular digital token, right? And that could be a picture, it could be something else. But what you receive is essentially the rights to tell others because, you know, property rights are always essentially a relationship with other people. You have the right to tell them that you own that as a unique token, as something that is a one-off that can't be replicated. But of course, if, if it is an online picture, I can right-click and save it, and, and now I have a copy as well. And so really, like much in the art world, you're buying a lot around the hype, right? That it's this new way of creating art and culture, that it's something that is enabled by this newfangled technology called a blockchain some people are also taken by the idea that it is somehow permanently encoded on the blockchain and, and no human being can ever take away that right. We've seen a lot of software developers debunk some of these myths about how immutable this is and what information is actually stored on the blockchain. So I think even on the technical side, there are kind of obvious flaws with that. There's also one of the claims of you know having this completely decentralized space is also debunked by the increasing platformization of the NFT space, right? Everyone trades on some of the three of the biggest platforms. 
the platforms exercise a huge amount of power. They have sometimes refunded thefts, which is, you know, meant to be something that was not done because everything was immutable and you just had to watch out for your own goods and take care of your personal property. But of course, you know, all of the same trends that we saw with Web2 and some of the big platforms like Google and Facebook really appear to be repeating themselves with Web3, where you get an increasing concentration of power, you get a few big players that have kind of gatekeeper power over certain digital spaces, you know, increasingly exercising more control. And people want, often people want gatekeepers to come in and refund them when they've had their digital ape stolen or, you know, have made a mistake with the transfer of their cryptocurrency or things like that. So it's really tied to some of the hype of the art world. It's tied to people's desire to kind of get rich quick. And I think it's really an open question as to whether it will even continue in its current form over more than a few years, right? Because all it would take is a kind of quick downturn in the market and a lot of people's fortunes would be worth nothing overnight. And so I'm not sure whether that will happen. I'm not sure whether it will kind of continue as this more niche market where things are still, you know, semi-highly valued, but just no one in the public really cares about it much anymore, or if it will increasingly, you know, become mainstream and and the whole space will grow. I couldn't say what will happen, but I'm pretty skeptical about the utility of it all. Yeah, I mean, I want to dig in a little bit more into this idea essentially of the, you know, off the back of the NFT conversation of the speculative kind of economy more generally and the idea that kind of at the end of the day, something is worth what people are willing to pay for it, right? And it seems to me, and maybe I'm being incredibly reductive and missing the point, that what we're saying here is that there's this kind of insular economy or insular kind of set of uh, subcultures where folks just kind of get together and agree that something is worth a certain amount and therefore they generate a lot of wealth for themselves and other people in that space by doing that. Now, you could argue that that's the economy in general, (laughs) that what I've just described is capitalism. But where I think it gets interesting is, you know, when we go back to the conversation uh, that we were having at the start of this about Elon Musk and the fact that, you know, for example, he can massively alter the price of crypto with just one tweet. And, you know, when he said that he was taking over Twitter, I think it was, the the immediate share price, you know, skyrocketed, or maybe that was something else he was going to buy. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be interesting to hear more from you about what are the economic dangers of having the ownership model that we currently have around these pieces of digital infrastructure as it relates to this idea of, of speculation. So yeah, it, it was uh, the Twitter stock prices did go up quite a bit when when Musk announced he was purchasing it, and you know he has a lot of fans out there. He has incredibly devoted fans. And he has a lot of people who would want to work for him, and a lot of people would probably be buying stock if he um, purchased the company. And I think you're right to say that this idea of we all come together and decide how much an asset is valued, and that's what its value is. I think that is basically true, but. Having said that, you know, and that is kind of how other parts of the economy function, you know, cryptocurrency and crypto markets are, are far worse. They're far more volatile and far more speculative, right? To the point where, you know, quite a significant portion of the market is made up through very dubious kind of pump and dump schemes where people literally get together in a group, decide that they're all going to, you know, invest in a, in a small coin. They're going to pump it up to a really high price. They're going to have like an insider group. They're all going to know what point to buy, what point to sell, and they're all going to make a huge amount of money, essentially at the expense of people that are outside of of that 
you know, knowledge and that exchange network. Now, this is obviously illegal, but cryptocurrency isn't currently regulated in the same way that other parts of the stock market is. So it's very much kind of Wolf of Wall Street kind of levels of activity. And I think it's it would surprise some people who who don't know that much about the space quite how much of that activity is basically just, you know, everyday life in the crypto sphere. Now, for something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of these other larger currencies that have a higher market cap, a higher valuation, they're not quite as volatile as the very smaller coins where you can just basically get these rug pulls where people come along and just essentially just steal a bunch of money from a community or from a coin. These larger currencies are still, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, extremely volatile. They are affected by all kinds of political um, activity that's happening in the world. The environmental costs of cryptocurrency are enormous when a, a country attempts to ban it or where energy production is affected in a certain part of the world, prices can really be affected. As I mentioned before, because of their volatility and this risk-averse factor that a lot of the market has when it experiences a downturn, they're the first things to get sold. And so you know, when there is an economic slump, Crypto's really heavily affected by that. And it doesn't just go down 5%, it goes down 10, 20, 30, you know, 40%. It takes huge hits. Now, that doesn't mean it can't go up again, but it essentially embodies some of the worst aspects of like financial capitalism, right? This kind of hyper speculative approach where you're essentially just bidding on things that themselves don't exist and you're, you know, making bets on whether it will go up and down. And none of this would take away from the fact that. You know, there are aspects of the real quote unquote economy that work like this as well. But I think cryptocurrency is just kind of capitalism on steroids, right? It just embodies some of the worst aspects of it. And the space is just awash with scams and all kinds of things that make it a, a very dangerous kind of world if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure quite a few listeners will be familiar with the kind of missing crypto queen one coin scam uh, and the extent to which that, as you're saying, that really kind of played on this idea of crypto as a way of kind of democratizing uh, finance and helping people out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And ended up, as we know, kind of like bankrupting thousands of people all, all over the world and taking people's life savings. And all of that was for the reasons, a lot of the reasons you've laid out here around the idea of you're being kind of sold a bit of a dream. It's a dressed up, get rich quick scheme that sadly does pull a lot of people in. So we've talked a lot about the current state of the internet and what's going wrong, but I know you've been working on quite a few ideas to solve some of the problems. So if we're trapped in a digital world that's kind of dominated by big tech, how do we get out of it? I know that Estonia has made some big changes and there's other interesting things going on. First question, should we be nationalizing tech platforms? Uh, so I recently published a book called Platform Socialism, which talks about how we can have a better internet and what kinds of alternative platforms exist in a lot of these different domains. I don't think nationalization is the only option we have. I think that it's kind of you know, it's the first left-wing reaction to kind of say, oh, well, maybe we should nationalize it. I think that, you know, in terms of, let's take Twitter as an example, in addition to a potentially national-owned social media company, so like a kind of public Facebook, there are kind of decentralized alternatives to Twitter. And we could turn to something like Mastodon, which people have talked about a lot in the wake of Musk purchasing Twitter. It's like a free and open source web publishing platform. It's kind of like a Twitter clone in many respects, but it uses an open protocol for status updates 
And it's part of what's known as the Fediverse, which is a portmanteau of, of federalism and, and universe. It's like an ensemble of, of federated servers where people can communicate with each other across different platforms. And I think that cross-platform communication is one of the big benefits of using open source software like Mastodon. So we have these alternatives. Um, Mastodon is free for people to use. It's ad-free. You don't get tracked or surveilled. And you know, if Musk thinks that Twitter is the digital town square, then this would be the alternative down the road where you know we don't have big corporations owning and controlling everything you do. It's probably unlikely that there will be a mass exodus from Twitter. You know, I mean, when I started tweeting about Mastodon when it was announced, I think Mastodon's servers kind of crashed momentarily. They have had a huge uptake in people. But I think it's, you know, it's worth knowing that people on Twitter kind of live for the, the drama that someone like Musk brings, right? So I, I doubt that everyone will be leaving just yet. But you, you do have these decentralized alternatives. One of the interesting things about Mastodon is that you can start to develop these smaller communities that look a little more like kind of subreddits than the kind of big centralized Facebook platforms. So you can get smaller communities developing their own moderation policies, developing the rules that would kind of govern their group, and being able to communicate across groups, but having these these different rules and different norms of how they operate. And so I think this idea of saying that does look a bit more like some aspects of Reddit with these decentralized alternatives is one really good approach for the kinds of alternatives that we could see. Some of the problems that it encounters, firstly, in terms of funding and user experience, I think there's a a real roadblock there at the moment. Most of these decentralized alternatives have been developed by one or two people, often in their spare time, often with limited resources. And so it's not surprising that they often lack the kind of really smooth user-friendly experiences that some of the big corporate platforms offer. I think you could potentially solve this through offering public funding for open source alternatives. You could you know, have competitions and kind of research grants that are given out to fund people to do these in, in more professional ways, right? So it's not just a part-time hobby. It's basically like you get really competent, you know, motivated, well-organized teams that are working on these kinds of projects that are developing these tools as a public good. I think that is really an important notion here, the idea that we essentially we need a bunch of digital services that are publicly funded and that are run as public goods, right, or public utilities. I think that's what we're really lacking, right? And in the past 20 years, what has kind of happened very slowly is that the essential services and and digital tools that we use for almost everything we do now are now run by for-profit companies that that often have very dubious business models that are operating as very extractive kind of services. And so I think we do need publicly funded digital tools that are run for people rather than for profit. And the good thing about the web and the digital sphere in general is that it does have this great affordance for propagating things for free it was actually kind of you know in the early days of the internet it was never like an anti-capitalist space right we all know about the kind of libertarian origins of it but it did take a while for it to become fully privatized the early days of the internet were about you know sharing you know code and sharing software that you were using it was only really bill gates and and his very litigious efforts 
that eventually, you know, privatized software and, and tried to make everything shut down and you couldn't tinker with things, you couldn't kind of share code, you couldn't share software that you were working on. And so I think there is a capacity and, and a kind of, you know, that's native to the web to for software to be free and for us to develop really well-functioning public goods that might be used by large numbers of people and, and curated and, and cared for by the communities of users themselves. So I think that's one, you know, really interesting thing that could be happening in this space um, where these decentralized alternatives are a possibility. There are some further barriers. I think one of the big question marks would be around content moderation, because let's say you have this, you know, uh, new world in which you've got some a government interested in publicly funding some some interesting alternatives. Content moderation is is a burden, right? It's very hard to do. It's very political. It's contentious. It takes huge amounts of resources. You have the initial kind of problems of things like child pornography and horrific pictures and videos. And then you have, you know, very sensitive political issues, right? Conflicts between nation states, um, rebellions and revolutions that are going on. It's very hard to know what to put up, what to take down. Even a well-intentioned kind of politically savvy community is not going to get it wrong all the time. You need hundreds and, and thousands of people to do that kind of service. So there are opportunities perhaps for third parties to come, maybe civil rights organizations, maybe trusted intermediaries, trusted other organizations that might offer something like an app through which you would access social media services. So you might use, I don't know, you might use Neff's Twitter, right? That Neff would have their own kind of way of moderating or, or, or filtering out certain content from the internet and that people would start to use slightly different services, but maybe they could still communicate with each other because they're operating through these platforms that operate on open protocols. So yeah, content moderation becomes a really big issue. I don't think for a second that it's easily solved, right? All of the things that I've suggested kind of raise their own problems. So you've got the funding issue, you've got the content moderation issue, and then you've just got the migration issue, right? How do you get billions of users off corporate platforms onto decentralized alternatives? Because the skeptical listener will just say, well, it's just not going to happen. People aren't going to leave Twitter. They're not going to leave Facebook or they might leave Facebook, but they're just going to go to TikTok. So how do you get people to move? And I think part of the reason why I wrote my book, Platform Socialism, is because I wanted to you know, continue this conversation about the genuine alternatives that do exist and that a, a different kind of internet is possible. And I think it will only be possible when an increasingly larger group of people start to take the alternatives seriously and start to think and talk more about getting them funded, about moving over there, and about trying to say no and trying to highlight the problems and, and the extractive business models that the corporate platforms use. I mean, to me, that seems kind of like the perfect place to wrap up, which is, you know, as you say, with the beginning of a conversation that needs to happen. And I think it sounds, you know, like the work you're doing is is really crucial to opening the door for that conversation. I guess just one thing I, a little musing that I had um, when I was listening to you there was, I certainly can get on board with this idea that, of course, when the internet is something now that is so central to the way society is run and is, you know, such a mainstream 
element of all of our lives, it should have some kind of public provision behind it. It should be something that is kind of where there's an agreement about how that space is is held and, and moderated and what democracy looks like and all those kind of things. It's kind of absurd that there isn't really. But until we get there and until that conversation gets further down the line, what are the kind of in-between steps that can be taken? I hear a lot of people talking about uh, the need for better regulation of big tech companies and things like that. Do you think that there are interim steps that, that can and should be taken or that we just need to kind of focus on the long goal here? No, of course, I think, you know, any program of reform starts with immediate actionable items. I think, you know, organizing of tech workers has been really promising, particularly, you know, in the immediate pre-pandemic era, there was this huge spike in 2019 of workers at some of the biggest tech companies that were starting to organize against harmful projects, uh, against some of the racism and sexism in their industry, and on a variety of other important social issues. And we've seen Amazon unionizing recently. So unions and, and organizing within workplaces is really important. I do think that tech companies are too big and too powerful, so, and, and that regulation, particularly of the kind of antitrust and anti-monopoly variety, is a, a step in the right direction. So I welcome the kind of you know, new EU directives on that and also moves in the US to take action against big tech. I think there are you know, a few issues with how they're framed, but I think they're kind of pointing in the right direction and will genuinely make an uh, important difference. But I think the point and the, the reason why I wrote the book was I think in addition to this resisting and regulating big tech, I do think you need to recode big tech. I think you need to start as users and as communities, we need to start looking for alternatives and starting to use those and start to try and migrate to different platforms and different ways of operating, right? Using free and open source software and not kind of committing to some of the big platforms in the ways that we are. Mm, I mean, again, a good place to start, especially with those kind of incremental steps that we need. Dr. James Muldoon, that is all we've got time for on this week's episode. Thank you so much for being with me. I do feel terrified still, but I also feel hopeful. So that's good. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking me on that journey. It was super accessible and comprehensive. If people want more accessible and comprehensive information from you, where can they go? How how can they get that? Uh, they can go to my personal website, jamesmuldoon.org. And I have all my writing and a lot of my um, articles and book links up there. Fantastic. Thank you, lovely listener, for being with us. That is it for today's new economics podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.